Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. There's a book out called Sharks in the Time of Savior. Sharks in the Time of Savior is the debut novel by the one and only Kawhi Strong Washburn, and I'm going to welcome him to the show right now. Hello, Kawhi. Welcome. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming through. And let me introduce you to Sina Gaznavi, my partner in power, Hello. my co-host. Um, I love writers. Tell me a little bit about your background before you tell us about this supernatural story of sharks and, and gods. Yeah, certainly. I hope my kids aren't making too much noise there in the uh, background and I can hear them right now, but we don't care. We we don't I, care. Cena's got his dog in his now, lap. Right? He's got, you know, he's got things going on. Look, look at his dogs right yeah. there. Yeah, we, yeah no, I know. That's the world we live in a world now where everybody's in everybody else's living room, right? Anytime we're on the mic or anytime we're on a camera, it's like, yep, and, and, here's and my pause family. There, pause there so. for a second. I don't think we should go back. I think the intimacy of, of it's like breaking that third wall or whatever they call that in Hollywood. You know, uh, we, we saw it with reality TV, which was fake, you know, yeah. scripted. This now we really are seeing people you know, with the kids and the dogs and the everything, but they're still valid and valuable and we're still having these conversations. So, you know, does your background, yep. hair and makeup, you know, all of that stuff that was important to delivering great television now is like, eh, show up, just you know, and let's talk. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, so in terms of my background, I'm, uh, I was born and raised in in Hawaii, on the big island of Hawaii. Wait, hold on. Do you um, have I a live birth birth certificate? <laughs> no you know what i did my uh i got my i got my name changed when my wife and i married i i took her last name as one of my middle names and so i had to get like an admitted birth certificate so i've got a paper one in my file if i had to look for it i could produce it pretty fast so there wouldn't be any sort of I think that, I don't know, you know, people that are into those sort of conspiracies, they'll find a way anyway, but I could give you the piece of paper right there with now, the water. I believe you. I believe you. I believe you. All right. So, yeah, so yeah. you were born in Hawaii, Hawaii. Yep. Um, and and yeah. people who can't see him, uh, you look like a man that is black. You look like a black man. That, so I'm going to, that is I'm correct. That assume is correct. that you're a black man born in Hawaii, yep. which is very unusual in America for a black man to be born in Hawaii. So tell me yeah. your, your story. Yeah, you know, so my mom and my dad met in in Hawaii. My my mother, my mother's black. She's from Kansas, Kansas City, actually, Kansas City, Missouri. So she's not from Kansas. She's from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but she was in the islands for school and uh, at the University of Hawaii. And so was my father, who's a, a music teacher. He's a high school music teacher now. Anyway, they met there, and uh, I was born and raised there, you know, and, and grew up in the islands. I didn't leave until I was 18. I grew up in a small town called Honaka, which features in the novel prominently, and is a, it's a, you know, it's a small town that was originally sort of, its, its first boom years were under the sugarcane plantations. The sugarcane industry kind of took off in, in Hawaii during, I believe, the, the two biggest points in, in time for it were the War of 1812 and then again in the Civil War because uh, sugar was being needed to produ produce somewhere else outside of the South, right? And there was an embargo. So at, those, at that time, especially, the sugarcane industry really took off and there were a bunch of subsidies for sugar in, in the islands. And so that's Honoka'a is a, is a sugarcane town. And so I pause, grew up... Pause, pause for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Hawaii came into the United States really late, one of the last states yep. it might have been the 50th there. state 50th last state, one right um yeah. 
racially, you know, we're having a lot of conversation today about George Floyd because of the Derek Chauvin trial and what this yeah. trial says about this country. You know, when you said when yeah. I was reading, you know, reading up on on the book and reading up on you, I was like, Sugar Cane's in in Hawaii were there enslaved people there like and what are you taught in the schools about slavery and being a black person what what was that experience what was racism was there racism on the island yeah you know so there I don't want to I don't want to paint a rosy picture because just like just about everywhere else I've been in the world and I've been to a lot of countries there are still issues with race in in Hawaii that you know people are still working through a lot of that but I will say for me, you know, as, as a person of color, as a black man growing up in, in the islands, I never, I, in my opinion, and the experiences I had, the racial dynamics are very much inverted. Like where I grew up, like the, you know, and I hate using these like broad categories because they don't necessarily work in all situations. But if you want to say white, Caucasian American, European American, that category was a minority where I grew up, right? And so everybody I knew was two, three, four different races. They were a mix of Filipino, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, all these different immigrant groups that had come in particular to the islands to work on the sugarcane plantations, to work on the, you know, work in the pineapple fields to help build the railroads that were running in the islands. So there were waves of immigrants in the islands and it made for this incredibly rich place where i don't it, i never felt like my race was a question it was never and people have such a different idea of race there in general it can be a much more fluid and expansive thing that can be multiple categories you know everybody's like two or three four different races uh, so growing up in the islands you know that was a gift for me because i think a lot of the institutionally racist experiences that a lot of people are have they were not part of my upbringing and in addition to that, you know, you asked about schools where I grew up, you know, in the islands, we learn about the annexation of Hawaii, right? So that was once the, the 50th state, you know, Hawaii, that was once a sovereign kingdom, totally its own kingdom. And it was annexed illegally by the United States at gunpoint, right? The queen was, was basically deposed at gunpoint. And then there was a very brief period where the, the island was in sort of a just sort of in limbo legally and then it became a state um and so that like that my perception in the united states and america is profoundly shaped by that history you know so by the time i arrived in the continental united states not only did i have a different experience of my own race but i had very different ideas about what the united states represented based on where i grew up you know and then in addition to that my mother um you know she was very influential in helping me understand blackness in America and understand what it meant to be black. And I remember, you know, I can, I won't talk too long, much longer, but I remember she and I were sitting at a bus stop once in Honolulu and it was later in the evening and it was just, she and I were just sitting there waiting for the bus and a black man walked by and, you know, he was like, what's up sister. And she was like, Hey brother. And I was like, wait, do you know him? I was pretty young. Right. I was like, do you know him? And she was like, no, no, but you, you got to understand that there's a, there's a level of connection that you have, you know, black people have a certain level of connection that, that you're going to have to understand comes from a background we've had of having to deal collectively with a certain amount of oppression and racism in this country. And so there's a connection that a lot of us share, and especially in a place like Hawaii, where, you know, black people are still a minority there, even though there's a bunch of different racial groups. Um, she's like, yeah, you know, we look out for each other. We just, at the very least, acknowledge each other's presence if nobody else is going to, right? And so um, I, there were lots of lessons like that that she taught me. So, you know, my upbringing was a very uh, specific and I, in a lot of ways, I think a very good one for me because it allowed me the space to be myself in a way I think 
a lot of people of color don't get the opportunity to have in the United States. So. Kawhi Strong Washburn. Kawhi, what does that mean? K-A-W-A-I. Yeah. What, what is that? Yeah, so that's actually, and actually the way to pronounce it is Kawhi. The W is like a V. And it's Hawaiian for that particular part is the water. Uh, my whole first name is Kavaiola, which means the water of life. And then I have a longer uh, middle name that also means in love with life. So yeah, my mom gave me, and my parents gave me uh, a Hawaiian name. And I think that that had a lot to do with my mother understanding, seeing the parallels between the things that the kingdom of Hawaii went through during annexation and the work that the native Hawaiian community in the islands was doing to, to fight back against kind of the historical legacy of annexation. So I think she saw some connections there and felt a, a, a bunch of solidarity, you know, cause my older brother's name, Malcolm, he's named after Malcolm X. So, uh, so, you know, she, wow. she gave us different names, but they were very politically important names for her. I think. So. Kaviola. Um, the first yeah. time you experienced racism. Ah, uh, let me see. I think the one that sticks with me the most, cause it, ha it still happens. And it's, this is kind of, it's, I wouldn't call it like harsh, harsh racism, but it's just that othering is when people ask me, what are you, right? People, I still get asked that people see me and they're like, what are you, you know, or somebody will, will, will come up to me. I remember I was in a comedy club in, in New York. And when the comic came off the stage, he, he decided he wanted to stop and like grab my arm and explain to me how much I looked like, I can't remember his name. But he's, I, he's like Dominican, you know, he's like a pitcher in the major leagues at the time, you know, but he wanted to stop me and explain to me how much I looked like him. But just the way that he did it, there was this sense of just like, he felt like he could, he was entitled to just tell me who I looked like or who he thought I was, you know. So that one has stuck with me. Um, people that have asked me questions about like, what are you? Because that, that still comes up a lot. Those are a couple that, that come to mind that are really sharp. Cena, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't want to yo <laughs> hog, hog the interview. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was just to just to piggyback on that. Um, I think there's a lot of of commentary that people will make. Like I'm in an interracial relationship and people will be like, that baby is going to be so beautiful with the mix with the Middle Eastern and the Japanese. Did you experience that kind of stuff as well? I don't know. You have kids, obviously. I don't know what, what relationship you're in, but I feel like that's like in the same vein as like, what are you? People are always interested almost in like the mixing of, of what happens when, when we procreate. Yeah. Yeah. No, ex exactly. As if, as exactly. if you're different animal species, like a exactly. cockadoodle or something. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to react times. to that stuff. I, neither do I, you know, it's hard. It's hard that sometimes when that happens, it's just sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out the best way to interact with that. And, you know, sometimes people can be better or worse in those sorts of situations. Sometimes I know people are just like, yeah. they just don't have it. They don't know that they don't know how to ask or engage with the, the thing that's actually interesting. And so they do it in this really awkward sort of blunt way. Right. And you just sort of like, this is not, you know, so, you know, I try to give people the, the benefit of the doubt and understand that in most cases, I think that it's it's really coming from a place of just sort of awkwardness and, and ignorance as opposed to some desire to actually hurt somebody, you know. Um, I, and there's, yeah, go ahead, please. No, no, no. I was just going to say, you know, uh, as a writer, you, you have an opportunity then to put all of that into your work. You know, I'm reading uh, another book. Um, which is written by a Nigerian woman about um, demons. Uh, but the demons in this book are actually 
not what you think they are. They're not the, the evil ones. The evil ones are the people trying to kill them. And she's, you know, sussing out these themes, injecting African culture and African language. And through the work of a novel, you can, you know, um, educate people, right? It's called The Gilded One. I don't know if you've heard of that. So, so I've heard I, of it. I haven't read it. When I started reading Sharks in the time of Savior, I was like, this guy has an interesting background. And I want to know what, you know, how do you think about these things? Like, what informed you to tell this story in this body? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I think some of the things you had spoken about that are in the Gilded One are some of the same elements that I, you know, became the things that felt to me like they were really important about, you know, my novel. And one of those is the use of the use of magical realism and folklore and mythology from from cultures that are not that are not well known or that that in a lot of cases have been a part of America, but have been sort of silenced or muted is a way to undermine most people's assumptions about not only the stories that the country tells itself, but even, you know, the concepts we might have about, about life. And just like, you know, some basic, you could call these religious concepts or things like that, but there are a lot of cultures where the idea of the world only being composed of the same things that we can see and feel and measure as being the most things that are most vital and truthful is one of the things that when I was working through this novel, to me felt like something to try and to try and hold up in question, right? And so using mythology as a way to push back against that and against the, I think a lot of the, the values that it springs from is, is part of what I was trying to do, right? So I got a sense of wanting to use the mythology of the, the islands to tell a story, not only about the islands, but about America that undermined a lot of the assumptions people have about what's true and what's right and wrong and and you know to ask a lot of questions about those sorts of things so so tell us something we didn't know because i'm you know all right so it starts off the on on this island in hawaii uh mm-hmm. family's on vacation seven-year-old uh falls overboard and encounters a shark and then something happens between the shark and the child that's magical yeah. what story are you telling with this with this opening and then what are we learning what what is it that you wanted us to know about this culture that we didn't know before yeah so first of all that that idea right the idea of um sharks are a very powerful animal in the mythology of Hawaii and, and they're, they're both feared and revered, you know, and depending on the story and the context, you get kind of both of those flavors of them. But in, you know, in native Hawaiian culture, there's an idea of an almakua, which is, which is a spirit. It's sort of a, an ancestral spirit that has been, that, that reconnects with the family through an animal in a lot of cases. And so different, different families will have their kind of almakua and you can think of it as like a spiritual protector, guider, that is part of the, the ancestry coming back to life through an animal. And so that's what the sharks are interpreted as at the start of the story. But not only that, the fact that they, they rescue this child and deliver this child back to, to his family begins a story initially, what I think a lot of people perceive as a story about almost like the second coming or about a very special chosen child that's going to do big things for their family and big things for the world right and that's what the family initially thinks this this 
event represents, right? Somebody that's bigger than life going to be a, a really big deal for the family. And at the same time that this is happening, the family's dealing with, with pretty, like they're like right on the knife's edge of poverty, right? They're really struggling economically. And so it makes it that much more powerful to have this thing to believe in. So I kind of set that up early on as an idea of, of sort of putting all of your hopes and dreams behind some bigger than life figure as the same way a lot of people think about change in the United States and all over the world in the sense that a lot of times when we talk about movements, right? When we talk about the civil rights movement, when we talk about even things as simple as like inventions, a lot of times there's this desire to attribute that whole moment to a specific individual or maybe two or three individuals, right? And I think a lot of people, if we talk about the civil rights movement, they can rattle off the names of like two or three figures and they're like, you know, in their minds are kind of like, well, these are the people that led the civil rights movement. And if it wasn't for them, then we wouldn't be where we are today or things like that. When the reality is, it's almost always a community. And there's almost always so many people in all these different places that are quietly doing the work, right? And nobody ever knows their names. But a lot of the change that happens wouldn't have come anywhere close to where it was without all of those people. And so this novel kind of starts with that question of sort of if we have somebody that we hold up and consider them the the one the one that's going to change everything what if maybe that's not true and that's not the case and I think that's the big question for me that the novel was asking and it starts out with that that moment of the child being saved by sharks and the way the family interprets it I think that's a interesting point you bring up because I think we as the as humans we have a tendency to want to put other humans on a pedestal and kind of emulate them, not, not just role models, but as this, there should be this central being, whether it was president Obama, uh, whether it was any, anyone, right. But they're just human. Right. I mean, I I was just watching Michelle Obama talk about how president Obama um, uh, proposed to her and he like had an argument and then he he put the ring down. He's like, I bet this will shut you up. And I was like, that's kind of intense. And she tells it in this very funny way. But I was like, I, I don't know if I like that so much. And we put people on a pedestal. What do you see in society that reflects that? And what do you think, where do you think we should be going? Yeah, you know, so I kind of pointed to it with a few of, of the way we tell history is always something that needs to be revisited. We should always be looking back at history and working more and more on asking questions about, is this really what happened? Is this really the truth? You know, what's behind that? And every time we try to take an event and simplify it to just a couple of individuals being the primary individuals that drove it, those are the places where we need to, to dig deeper. And, and that happens with, you know, even with ongoing current events today, right? When there are episodes of, of violence or civil unrest or different things, people want to collapse it very quickly to a simple narrative. And they do that so that then you can just take sides, right? And this happens all the time. Like people, you can almost detect when a headline shows up. I feel like most people are pretty savvy about how they think of themselves and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal or I'm, you know, I'm very compassionate or I believe very deeply in, in human rights and Black Lives Matter. And so you have these labels that you associate with yourself. And then when something happens externally, you can very quickly filter how you should react to it, given your ideas of your identity of yourself. Right. And so we really quickly collapse ourselves into groups that then just argue over things really quickly without even really digging underneath them to, to understand what what's really happening right because most stories are much more complicated than i think people are, are willing to give, give credit for so i think one of the other ways you can kind of think about 
the easy narrative is to always push back against that. And anytime there's a news story that comes through or something like that, to take a minute to slow down and, and as much as your emotions might want you to just roar right in with like your strong opinion, to slow down just a little bit and take a little time to think about like, what's the real story underneath here and who's trying to tell me this story and what are their motives behind telling me this story? Because that's where you come back to that bigger idea of like the, you know, like the big man theory of history and things like that, right? I mean, even if you look at something like the Bible and the way the Bible has been re interpreted and way it's been changed over time, depending on whose hands it passed through and what their political motives were at the time for interpreting the Bible a certain way and making the words, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to revisit the original scripture and reinterpret it in this way. So that when you read this sentence, the things that are pulled out of it are different than they might've been if you were looking back at the original event. Right. So there's lots of situations where things are like that. This whole big man theory of history a lot of times it comes from specific people who have specific ideas about how they think the history of, of a given event went. And that's almost never the case. Right. Um, so I, I think that that's, I try to stay very skeptical of any new story that I hear, especially ones that try to ascribe very simplistic narratives with, with a few people. And I always try to dig a little deeper and give myself a little time to understand it before I figure out whether or not I'm going to have any sort of opinion about it. Kavai. Washburn, Kavai Strong Washburn. Uh, you can follow him at Incredible K Dub, the KW, <laughs> Incredible K Dub on the Twitters. Sharks in the Time of Savior is the book. What's the big story? Your bio says you're raising your daughters in Minneapolis. That's the uh, place where George Floyd took his last breath, May 25th, 2020. Yeah. What story did you tell them? And what's the biggest story? What's the story we're not hearing? About, you mean about George Floyd and about Minneapolis? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I'm, I'm still learning that story because we'd only been here a year or so uh, when that happened. Um, sorry, I'm going to try not to cry when, when I talk about this. But, you know, the, I, it was the first time that my, my older daughter is, um, she just turned seven. And so at the time she was six, a little over six. And I, I mean, we had to talk her through everything, right? It was the first time she was old enough where I'm like, she, she understands more about death than she used to. And she understands more about the way people talk about different races than she used to. Cause before she was a little bit young, she didn't understand it. So it was the first time we really had to sit down and talk with her about why that happened and what some of the underlying ugliness is in the United States that she has to pay attention to and watch out for. And I remember talking with her about that and just sobbing, just breaking down, crying about it and trying to explain to her because she didn't understand. She kept thinking, you know, I think the saddest, one of the hardest parts about it was she was, she was just sort of like, well, maybe he, maybe he didn't mean it. Right. Cause she's still was sort of like, aren't police supposed to protect people? And we were talking. And I think a few of our neighbors um, who live down the street that are mixed race as well were there and we had this very open discussion where we were like, no, unfortunately you can't, you, you can't expect, sometimes there are people in positions of power you think are supposed to protect you and you can't expect them to protect you. And in fact, they might want to hurt you. And we talked about how some of the children of this mixed race couple that lives down the block from us, how they had to teach their children to be like, you find an adult you trust. Don't go, if there's, if you have a problem, you shouldn't necessarily go to the police. You should go to somebody you trust because you never, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, find an adult that you trust, not just any adult and not somebody necessarily that's in uniform. Um, so we talked, we talked with her a lot about that sort of stuff and, and we kind of keep revisiting it as, as time goes on. 
Um, How much did she see? She's six. She's six. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't, you know, there was an eight-year-old that was there. She testified. She testified this week. An eight-year-old testified. I know. Your daughter was six and you had to have that conversation with her. How much did she see and what, you know, and where do we go from here? You know, as you uh, think your imagination is huge, you know, you, you have taken us on a ride with this book, Sharks in the Time of Savior. So you think broadly about things and your imagination is wild where do we go from here yeah i'm glad you asked that because i think that's one of the things that we we all have to work harder in rather than accepting everything as it is now in the world we have to work harder to build stories about the kind of future we want to see we have to really start envisioning like, what do you want the world to look like? What would a perfect world look like, right? As opposed to, I think, you know, it's funny. I see so many books come out that are sort of these futuristic books and they're almost all these post-apocalyptic books in which governments are falling apart and people are like running around in cannibalistic tribes, like taking the last bits of water and electricity from each other and things like that. And I, you know, at one level, we, we become what we tell ourselves we are. And I think people are so busy being cynical because I think that's an easy, I think it's easier to be cynical than it is to, to be courageous and to really envision the world you want to, to see and then actually ask yourself, now, how do we get there? Right. But it starts with that vision. And so for me, you know, if we're talking specifically about policing as, as one component of a much bigger issue of institutional racism, we can get a whole long discussion about like the intersections and where that all is if we were to talk specifically about policing, right? And, and how we want that to be different. There's a question of well, what would it look like? What would a perfect future look like? And, and what role would police have or not have in that? And my personal belief from my, the things that I have been able to understand from the different news sources here that are pretty local, it's not as easy as just completely abolishing the police, right? Because there's a lot of people, there are a lot of black communities here in Minneapolis that still have issues related to violence and gang warfare and things like that, that need a, a presence that will help maintain some level of security. And you can't just yank that away uh, until we've gotten to the point where we've dealt with all those underlying problems that lead to the kind of like violence within communities and drug abuse and all those sorts of things we are going to need some form of like a, a physical security, but that should be a very, very last resort, right? One of the things right now that we're missing is we're missing a very deliberate, a very deliberate effort to undo the instant, the historical, like the institutional legacies of harm and racism that have led to where we are now. Like ghettos are not an accident. This is not an accident. That is a choice. It is a very specific choice that was made a long time ago to take Black people and put them in a very awful situation over and over and over again in as many ways as possible, right? Even now here in, in the neighborhood I live in, a lot of people are just waking up to the idea that a lot of this community was redlined back in the day and that a freeway that goes through the middle of the city was specifically designed to carve up a Black neighborhood, a thriving Black neighborhood. And so the question is, is like, all right, there's a couple of things we have to do. One of those things is we need to own up to that history and actually do work, not only to just say, I'm sorry, but to then do the work to say, now, how do we, how do we take the harm and 
actively undo it. Meaning, can we put money into these communities? Can we actually take all the money that was denied black people for mortgages, you know, in the GI bill after they came home from fighting in World War II? It's a whole generation of people that missed out on the wealth that was built in this country on the backs of mortgages. How do we get that wealth back? Right? How do you actually then say, you know what? We denied you wealth for generations. Why don't we give you some money back directly? Let's help you be homeowners. Let's invest extra money in black businesses, things like that, right? Can we set up um, black investment funds that are specifically built to target black entrepreneurs? You know, that's one component of it, right? That's like, that's dealing with the institutional legacy. And then there's also the part about talking about policing. And the question there is, how much of the work that happens right now through police can we take and do that work other ways, right? And so now we're coming down to like this idea of criminalization, right? Like how much of our nonviolent offenses can we start to handle differently? Can we start to think about those things as um, like drug, like drug addiction, like that's not a crime, that's an illness. You need help for that. You don't need to be punished. You don't need to be thrown in prison for that, right? That's the kind of thing that we need to start looking at alternatives. Like how do we intervene in communities with people from that communities? Like how do we help support the people that are already doing that work and help them scale that up and expand it, right? So that they can start taking care of themselves. Cause you know, if we talk very specifically about it's even kind of funny now I'm totally swerving off course here, right? But no, like- <laughs> we, we actually have to go though, Kavai. So what I'm gonna do is invite you back. <laughs> See, All right. Yeah. Because no, 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 because it's important. These conversations are important. Yeah. This is important. Y'all not going to get any of this in this book, by the way. You're going to get goodness <laughs> and imagination. And you're going to see the world differently. Sharks in the time of savior. But you have to promise to come back and, and have whole court with us on this. You have to promise. Absolutely. Okay. It'd be a pleasure to come back. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.